Our text today is Second Chronicles 30, verses 13 through 22. Second Chronicles 30, 13 through 22. Listen to the reading of the word of God. And many people came together in Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month, a very great assembly. They set to work and removed the altars that were in Jerusalem, and all the altars for burning incense they took away and threw into the Kidron Valley. And they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the fourteenth day of the second month. And the priests and the Levites were ashamed, so that they consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings into the house of the Lord. They took their accustomed posts according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests threw the blood that they received from the hands of the Levites, for there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who was not clean to consecrate it to the Lord. For a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. For Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. And the people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. And Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. So they ate the food of the festival for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord, the God of their fathers. And to the reading of the word of God, may we all say amen. I've been uh, reading the history of Israel's monarchy, and I've been profoundly enlightened and convicted by this absorbing history. The uh, two books of the Chronicles are essentially a parallel account of the two books of the Kings. And if you have read these historical books, you know what I'm talking about. Now, the reign of King Hezekiah in Judah is uh, most encouraging in this record. Because the fact is, the majority of both of Judah's kings and Israel's kings were apostate. Apostate means they turned their back on God. They quit following him and his holy law. Now, remember that as a judgment on Solomon's sin, God had divided his people into two rival kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Judah including, of course, the, the capital, we would say, the city of David, Jerusalem. Hezekiah himself ruled in Judah. He was an exception to the apostate trend. He was an island of righteousness in a sea of iniquity. Uh, we read an example of this in our passage. It's about the time that Hezekiah summoned all the people of Judah to a Passover celebration. God had uh, established the Passover uh, as Israel's most important feast. It commemorated Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And uh, God designed it to be observed every year. You probably know that our Christian New Covenant counterpart to the Passover today is the Lord's Supper. It's not identical it's kind of fused out of the Lord's Supper. Uh, by Hezekiah's time, uh, because of the apostasy of previous kings, this glorious Passover feast had fallen into neglect. 
Hezekiah was God's man. He knew that as a leader he was responsible to bring God's people back to a place of devotion and obedience to him. Therefore, knowing this, he used his kingly influence to reinstitute the Passover. Now, some unique problems attach to this reinstitution, however, and we can derive from it some remarkable truths for our lives today as God's people. Though we are not identical to Old Covenant Israel, yet we are the New Covenant counterpart to Old Testament Israel and are the people of God as they were the people of God. What are these lessons? First, godly shame leads to repentance and to obedience. Now, shame is a sense of uh, emotionally painful awkwardness, uh, driven uh, by guilt or else by the inappropriateness of one situation. Uh, sometimes no guilt is involved in shame at all. Uh, for example, small-statured boys sometimes feel ashamed when they're in the presence of very tall boys or very strong boys. They're ashamed of being small. But that's not the kind of shame that we read about in verse 15. The priests and Levites were ashamed because they hadn't been bolder, because they hadn't been more forthright in standing for the Lord against the idolatry of God's people. Judah had followed the ways of the surrounding pagan nations. God had warned them about being worldly, that is, following the ways of the pagan people around them. But unfortunately, that warning had gone unheeded. Judah had abandoned the antithesis. That's a good word for it, the antithesis, the absolute difference between God's righteousness and polytheistic paganism. And uh, the religious leaders had been lax in thundering the truth of God's requirements. Then when Hezekiah summoned the people to the Passover, many of those people came enthusiastically. So we might imagine the priests and Levites thinking about this time. We should be the ones enthusiastically leading our flock to repentance and to obedience. However, the priests and the Levites did, they did repent and join the people in fulfilling their job to consecrate themselves and others for the Passover. This is what their shame did to them. Their shame propelled them to repentant obedience. We today live in a culture uh, that has virtually, has virtually lost all godly shame. And the reason we've lost godly shame is we've lost our sense of personal responsibility to a personal God, as well as to his personal and holy law. Years ago, even in our nation, which was shaped by Christian truth, uh, an adulterous woman or an adulterous man were ashamed when their sin was made public. The same is true uh, with a young woman who became pregnant out of wedlock. It's true of a young man known to be sexually profligate. Uh, a married man caught entering or exiting a porn shop was ashamed. That's why people tried to hide their sin because of their sense of shame. Now today, none of these sins is considered especially shameful, and very few people feel the need to hide them. Both men and women joke about pornography, as though everybody looks at it, or at least would be normal for looking at it. And sleeping together before marriage is considered just routine. Uh, adultery is considered, uh, let's say, an unpleasant business, but generally not a shameful business. When uh, young men uh, in years past talked about explicit sex in the 
presence of a virtuous young woman, those women would often blush. This uh, blushing is a form of shame. In their case, not shame at committing a sin, but in hearing about a shameful sin in another person's presence. Now, the fact that there is so little blushing and shame today over sin is the evidence of a loss of God's law, including God's law that he installed in us in the form of conscience. Our culture's conscience is seared by a burning iron. That's kind of the language of 1 Timothy 4.2, and it's especially relevant to our culture today. This is one reason that the frighteningly shameful sin of homosexuality has become so routine. It's even solemnized in same-sex marriage today, though it's, of course, no marriage at all. This uh, routinization of sexual perversity was helped along by our culture's lack of shame toward heterosexual fornication and adultery. And for that matter, easy divorce. <coughs> the culture that is no longer ashamed of heterosexual fornication will soon not be ashamed of homosexuality and uh, therefore mark it well, will not even find pedophilia and bestiality shameful. Now don't say that it can't or won't happen. Once we get rid of God's law, we get rid of our shame in breaking it, and we open the floodgates to all sorts of sin. The legitimate shame of guilt is proof that God's law still has a hold on the culture. Now the good news is that God's people can repent and they can change, and we can repent and change. This is what the Levites and priests in Hezekiah's time did. They knew they were sinful. But they knew that they weren't destined to remain sinful. They knew that if they repented, God would forgive them. That's what Hezekiah had said, if you go back and read verses 8 and 9. They did repent, and they did change. Now let me draw your attention to the salient fact that it was specifically the religious leaders who were ashamed and who uh, later on repented and obeyed. They'd been negligent in standing up for God's truth. They'd been remiss in standing up for holiness. Our Western culture today suffers dreadfully from this uh, leadership disease, this leadership timidity, this leadership dereliction. Too many pastors and other religious leaders, even evangelicals and other conservatives today, have sat by in timid thumb-twiddling while the lambs under their care have drifted off into apostasy. Every form of apostasy. It can be unrepentant materialism, to uh, unrepentant fornication, covetousness, abortion, whatever. Our leaders seem to be afraid of godly confrontation. Now, it's true that confrontation is never easy, and all of us experience fear. But we leaders must act in faith and obey God and trust Him to honor our confrontational obedience. The number of pastors and other Christian leaders today who are waffling on same-sex marriage is utterly staggering and staggeringly egregious. One of my dear friends just related to me that he has very good evidence that very soon one of the prominent, perhaps the prominent evangelical pastor in uh, the Atlanta, Georgia area is soon to come out publicly in favor of same-sex marriage. That is utterly deplorable. One could almost say unforgivable, except except that if we repent and change, God will forgive us. 
These leaders are apparently less concerned with offending the loving, holy God in heaven than in offending the pleasantly diffident sinners they look at every Sunday. We Christian leaders must recognize that God honors faithful obedience, and if we simply stand for his holy truth, he'll bless us. In most cases, he'll use our words to bring his people to repentance and therefore to joy and hope and blessing. Now, if you're a Christian leader listening to my words, please take heart. If you've gradually drifted into compromising God's holiness and his moral law, maybe for good reasons you have told yourself, there is hope. It's called godly shame leading to repentance. Yes, you should be ashamed of yourself. All of us should be ashamed of ourselves when we neglect our sacred duty. But that shame shouldn't lead us to despair. It should lead us to action. That action is godly repentance and obedience. So stand before your followers. Tell them you've been wrong. Tell them you're going to stand for the truth from now on. Or write it on your blog if you don't have a specific congregation. Or use whatever medium is most appropriate. And tell them the truth. Confront them with both love and firmness. There is no shame in shame as long as shame leads us to godly repentance and obedience. Now, there's a second important, uh, important lesson from this uh, striking episode. It's this. God is even more interested in a heart passionate to obey him than he is in flawless procedural obedience. Please don't misunderstand me on this point. We are required to obey God's holy law. And if we disobey uh, on one point, we have disobeyed on all points, James chapter 2 and verse 10 states. However... Some matters of God's law are weightier than others. Jesus said this plainly in Matthew 23:23. Now Hezekiah noticed that many Jews wanted to observe the Passover when he had invited them to come. And they wanted to honor God in commemorating his grace toward their people, toward their fathers, their forefathers. But they weren't properly consecrated as God's written law, the law of Moses, required. Because of this, Hezekiah asked God to forgive them. And God did forgive them because he was pleased with their pure heart's desire despite their disobedience to the procedural aspects of his law. Now note this critical lesson. All sin is harmful. No sin is permissible. But God is eager to forgive the sins of those whose heart wants to do right. Let's give some examples of that in our own lives. We can look at uh, those who have been Christians a shorter time than we. Perhaps younger Christians themselves chronologically. Teenagers, those in their early 20s, who mark their bodies in a worldly way. Maybe they dress immodestly. Maybe they use scatological language. And we're rightly disturbed by these sins. But if they do have a heart desiring to please God, God is a good God who will forgive them. Perhaps they haven't been taught properly. And by the way, this is likely the case with many of the offenders in Judah. The priests and Levites probably hadn't instructed the people that they had to consecrate themselves before they came to the Lord's Supper. And therefore they didn't. So God was quick to forgive his people. Both the priests and the Levites, who hadn't been faithful in instructing, as well as the congregation, who hadn't been faithful to consecrate themselves. As indeed, even many of the priests and Levites hadn't. So, understand, God doesn't overlook any sins, but he is quick to forgive the sins of those who otherwise have a heart that's committed to him. That's why a submissive heart is most important in God's sight. 
This isn't to say God's unconcerned with sinful actions. Yes, he is. But an individual with a heart right with God will soon act in ways that are right with God. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we live according to what's in our heart, the inner core of our spiritual being. The Jews were so excited about observing the Passover that they plunged right ahead without properly consecrating themselves. But God forgave them when Hezekiah asked because they were operating with a good heart for him. And that leads to a final lesson. God will forgive the sins of others if we intercede in prayer for them. You may have heard that expression, intercessory prayer. We don't hear it as much today as we did years ago. That's a reflection on our prayerlessness. This intercessory prayer is a prayer for other people. All of us tend to be selfish. We're concerned with ourselves. And frankly, there's no sin in self-love as such. But we must pray for others and not just for ourselves. Now, we live in an age that prizes among other traits, and particularly, particularly this one the most, autonomy. Only we can make the most important decisions in our lives. No one else can make those decisions for us. Now, that way of thinking leads even Christians to believe that God will forgive their sins only if they confess them. In other words, what other people pray for us isn't of much account. It's only what we confess, what we say, what we can do. Now, that attitude shows how far we've drifted from the teaching of the Bible. Because the fact is, the Bible plainly teaches we can intercede for others, and God will forgive their sin. This doesn't mean they can continue in their unrepentant ways, but it does mean God will forgive the sins of those whom we love and for whom we pour out our heart in prayer. He'll forgive them of their sins by bringing them to repentance and uh, then forgiving them. Hezekiah was God's man. He knew that uh, his flock, the Jews, had turned their hearts to God, but they were still in sin because they hadn't cleansed themselves as the law of God required. So uh, he poured out his heart to God and asked God to forgive them. And God did forgive them because he prayed. That, uh, this episode exhibits the power of intercessory prayer. God's heart's greatly moved when we pour ourselves out to him for others. God hates sin, but he loves repentance. He deplores evil, but he delights when we turn from evil. God looks for any legitimate opportunity imaginable to forgive his people if only we turn back to him. Therefore, every day we should be praying for our children and our parents and our sisters and brothers in our family and sisters and brothers in the faith, and indeed for our nation and culture and civilization, that God would forgive our sins, that he would lead us to repentance and uh, to obedience. God judges sin, yes, but in his grace and mercy, he often doesn't give us what we deserve because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. He loves to pour out his grace on us if we confess our sin. And if we pour our hearts out in prayer for others, God will lead them to repentance and forgiveness. Our churches in our nation are suffering from a dreadful apostasy. We've turned our backs on a loving, triune God. He's our creator. He's our redeemer. And we've scoffed at communion with him for which he created us. We've spurned his holy law, which he gave us in order to make us happy and joyful. <clears throat> 
our churches and our nation face only God's judgment if we don't repent and turn to God. So please join me in crying out to God for his mercy. Only God can save us. Only God could ever have saved us. Thank you very much.